Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Um, hey, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Spence, serve as the lead pastor here at Mercy, and we are diving back in today to the book of Ephesians. But if you've been with us maybe just for the past five or six weeks, you're like, wait a minute, we were in this other series, it's hard to believe. Well, before that, we were in the book of Ephesians. So for us, this is kind of returning to where we were, and we're starting in chapter four, but here's the breakdown of this New Testament book. The first three chapters are all about who you are in Jesus, all right? This is who you are, who you are, who you are. Then, I mean, there's really only one command, the whole first three chapters. It's just this really quick thing, and it says, remember. Basically, remember who you are in Jesus. But then the back half, chapters four through six, that we start with today, and it'll take us about five weeks to get through, is a whole bunch of commands about how to live, how to live out of who you are in Christ. And he's got basically two arenas that he's going to put that to work. One is the church and the other is the home. So we're going to talk a lot about the church today and then we'll talk about the home and really beyond the home even to to life. And we're going to talk about conflict and forgiveness. We're going to talk about friendship. We're going to talk about marriage and parenting. We're going to talk about a very real enemy actively fighting against you and I both in the church and in the home. This is going to be filled with a lot of like tactical commands, okay? So if you are one of those folks that's a little more on the, yeah, man, just tell me what to do. Well, you need to buckle up, buttercup, because I've got a lot that he's going to tell you to do over these next few weeks, okay? I will say, this week in particular, though, this message, first part of Ephesians 4, I kinda, I was, it almost surprised me as I was studying this week that realizing, in some way, this may be the most important message that I preach to Mercy Church this year. Here's why. Our response to what God calls us as a church to in this passage, it'll determine who we are as a church. It's not going to be facility search strategies or dynamic ministry ideas, though those are important and we spend time and energy there. But how we respond to God's word about each one of our role in the church, that's what will shape Mercy's next five years. Y'all, I'm going to tell you, this this passage is a little bit confrontational, and it's urgent, and so I'm, I'm calling you to lean in and receive that from the Lord. In the first half of chapter 4, God is going to call us to a kind of life that directly conflicts with two of the most deeply ingrained values of our day, and those are individualism and consumerism. Consumerism says, the more I have, the happier I'll be, and we are in such an intensely consumer-driven culture right now, aren't we? I mean, we're the age of Amazon. You can click with one click in the same shopping cart. You can get like your Ted Lasso Halloween costume, some beard butter and a Norwegian axe, right? Uh, Just hypothetically, it's not a real thing that has happened, but hypothetically, but all those in one shopping cart. You know what I mean? We consume more information and more entertainment than any generation before us, and it ain't even close. 
We have more leisure time than ever before. We have more experiences than ever before. I mean, you think about it in your conversations. Man, you got to watch this show. Man, you got to eat at this restaurant. You got to listen to this album, then go to this concert, and then go to a movie that shows the concert where she plays the album live, right? You got to do all these things. We consume so much, but here's the problem. We weren't primarily created to consume. We were created in the image of a creator to create, to cultivate, to contribute. So the problem is, and people end up experiencing this, and maybe you've gotten to this point yourself, consuming stuff eventually consumes you. You stay up late consuming a show on your phone only to feel exhausted the next day. You're not made to consume, you're made to contribute and one of the primary arenas that we're going to talk about today, one of the primary arenas you were made to contribute is to the local church. No healthy church can survive and grow and multiply where its people are more consumer than contributor. But not only is he going to confront that, he's also going to confront this danger of individualism. And individualism might be our deepest held value in the West. I mean, think of America, we're a nation founded on the idea that the individual is valuable. We got a bill of rights. We can each make our voice heard by voting. It's not bad. That's brilliant. But what happens when that takes over our lives? When life, all of life is about me. I got to take the Enneagram so I know who I am, right? And you have to respond to me the way I am. I got to discover myself. I got to do me. I got to live my truth. And I need to live my truth out loud on my iPhone. I need to build a whole world to suit me. And the word today is going to come along and say, you weren't meant to be the center of your universe. If you'll forgive the cheesiness of it, you weren't meant for a life of me. You were meant to live a life of we. And in the church, that's actually a really big deal because when personal preference becomes your priority in the church, man, the church will start to devour itself. You were meant to live for others, not yourself. Those are the values of the world that we're up against as a church, consumerism and individualism, and the church is to look totally different from the world, and this passage we're in calls us to a beautiful, more desirable life than anything that the world has to offer. Listen, here's my main idea today. Here's what God is calling you, inviting you into today. God calls us to selflessly serve others by using our gifts God gives us to build up the church. And the reason I say it's the most important sermon I preach this year is that our response to this passage will determine the character, the nature of our church and our impact on our community. So we're going to get into it. We're going to start in verse one. If you're newer with us, as we say uh, regularly around here, we just take a passage of scripture and kind of work our way through it and see what God has for us in there. Okay. So first verse one, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, this is the apostle Paul talking, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. All right, right off the bat, first word is, therefore. And when you're reading your Bible at home, this word comes across the page. You take a look and say, okay, I gotta make sure I understand this is a progression of thought. The old preacher way of saying it is, if you see the word therefore, go back and find out what it's there for, right? Make sure you know what's happening. And in our case, chapter four, verse one, like I said, opening the second half of the book, the whole first half has been about who you are in Jesus. 
Like I said at the beginning, there's only one imperative, one command in the first three chapters. Everything else is who you are. You were dead. God made you alive. God saved you through his son, Jesus, who went to the cross to pay the debt that you and I owe for our sin. He died in our place. He rose again, defeating death. And through faith, we receive the forgiveness he purchased for us and we receive new life. That's what this is, the therefore is therefore. And now he says, walk. Walk, chapters four through six, I said 40 commands. It's how to walk, but the order is key. We walk from our salvation, from our acceptance, from the love of God, from our forgiveness, not for it. We don't walk worthy. I'm telling you, you come out of a background that tells you you need to walk in a certain manner to earn God's approval. You got to let this sink in because we're going to be talking about walking worthy. And you could drift back into that mindset of, man, I got to make God happy. Got to make God proud. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Walk from who you are in Christ. Walk from, walk worthy of who you are, but our faith is active. We do walk. Watchman Nee, a Chinese pastor from the 20th century, some time ago, um, said this in the first service. Um, this is just kind of random aside, but this week I was talking to my boys about, uh, we did a, a lot of soccer stuff this week. And one of my sons asked me, he said, Dad, is that the way y'all played soccer in the 1900s? And I went, okay, <laughs> listen, you need to chill right now, sir, with that garbage. So, so Watchman Nee was in the 20th century, but he's not ancient. Neither am I, all right? Um, he wrote a book about the Christian life, um, and it really, really, the, it's a great little book. If you want to kind of, uh, some commentary as we go through Ephesians to dig a little deeper, it's a great short little book, and it's called Sit, Walk, Stand. And uh, again, I think you should pick it up, but here's the way he talked about this. He said, though the Christian life begins with sitting, sitting is always followed by walking. When once we have been well and truly seated and have found our strength in sitting down, this is sitting in who you are in Christ, then we do in fact begin to walk. Sitting describes our position with Christ in the heavenlies. Walking is the practical outworking of that heavenly position here on earth. So we do walk. We do live out our faith. And the arena by which we live out that faith here in chapter four, what he's saying is it's the local church. Because the worthy walk is relational in nature. It's not individual. It's communal. It's relational. Watch. See what it looks like? It looks like verse 2. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. A walk worthy of the gospel is characterized by these two kind of couplings. The first one being humility and gentleness. When you understand the gospel, you see humility there. There's no room for pride. The gospel tells me that I was lost and bound for eternal death. Remember, walk worthy. Remember Ephesians 2. You were bound for death along with the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 4, but God. Not but Spence, but God. There's no place for pride when I remember the gospel. That's going to be critical in a moment. We're going to start talking about spiritual gifts. Because what could happen in the church is we could start comparing ourselves to one another. But instead... Remembering the gospel, we're humble, and our humility, when expressed, looks like, look at the word, gentleness. Gentleness towards one another, not harshness, 
gentleness. It looks like bearing with one another in love. It's patient love because God's love towards us looks like what? Patient love. So if you struggle with anger or harshness, hear me. Don't let these words wash over you. If you struggle with anger, harshness, impatience, frustration, it might mean you're forgetting the way God looks at you. You're forgetting what you deserve versus what you've been given. When you remember the gospel, we are able to bear with one another in love. Meaning when you mess up, I choose patience. When you sin, I choose love. I stay engaged with you. I don't run away. And I lovingly respond to you. And I don't know about your disposition, y'all, but this is hard for me. I mean, especially in the church. When it comes to the church, I want everything perfect and I want it now. Right? I want all the problems fixed immediately. And when I have to wait, so often my reaction is not patient love. It's impatient frustration. And again, that can spill into other arenas in my life as well. My only hope is each day remembering my worthy walk doesn't look like harsh, impatient leadership. It looks like what was given to me from Christ. Gentle, patient shepherding, because that's how Christ loved me. And to what end? Look at verse three. What is this? How's this going to work itself out? Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Making every, those who know the peace of Christ will not love conflict or controversy. Those who know the hope of the gospel will not love gossip. Man, this is so hard to see this in the church. It's so hard to see how much people, especially people in ministry, seem to love local church controversy. It's like the sinful nature in us seems to salivate over the things that tear the church apart. We should be grieving it. But he says, instead of that, you should work. Make, look at what he says. Don't let it, y'all, if you have been around church a while, you've heard a lot of sermons, you've seen the letter to the Ephesians, this could just, you could just let your eyes go right past it because we're going to talk about some gifts in a minute. Look what he says here. Make every effort, not a little effort, all possible effort. You should be sweating every effort to what? To keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, this is really good, to keep the unity of the spirit. You and I do not create unity in the church. Christ creates unity through the shared forgiveness that we have through his blood and the shared Holy Spirit. Christ creates the unity and then he gives that unity to the church and entrusts us as stewards of it to make every effort to maintain what he died for, that unity. That means a couple of things. Listen, it means if you relish the things that cause disunity, you're forgetting the gospel. Things like conflict or gossip, we should flee from gossip. What's gossip? You know what it is. You speak poorly of someone else by saying what you heard. When you cannot maintain unity, excuse me, you cannot maintain unity and gossip at the same time. And in fact, what he's saying, you gotta work hard not to do those things. But look, I actually think there's a greater way, a more common way that we disobey this. You can passively disobey what God is calling you to here. To making every effort, you can simply not make every effort. I think this is more of what we struggle with. It's consumerism. 
We don't make effort. We come to church for the input that we get, and we never make the effort, the output. We blame our disconnectedness in the church on our schedule, on our personality, or we blame the church itself. And yes, if you talk about Mercy Church, for sure, we got plenty of problems. And as long as you're here, we'll have one more, okay? That's just how it is. All of us are problem people, okay? There's sin in all of us. We could do things better, yes. But a lot of times, those twin values of individualism and consumerism make us sit back and say, I just really don't want to be involved in the lives of others. Just serve me my sermon, please. And at the first sign of something seeming off, we bail. If that's you, you've forgotten the gospel. Just think about it for a second. Other than the great love he has for you, why would God want to be involved in your life? You are a hot mess. And he knows what you do, and he knows what you think. It's not good. But what does he do? He doesn't run from you. No, he moves toward you in love for your good. And I say this in love as your pastor. Your passivity towards God's church is disobedience to God's commands in your life. You're, what, as you do that, as you're passive towards his church, you facilitate an erosion of unity when you do not actively strive to keep it. I'll show you more on that in a minute. Verse four, there is one body See if you can pick up on uh, the emphasis. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One, one, one. Another Bible reading, just note for you, repetition is for emphasis. He's saying the relationships, the community that is the church is in some way supposed to reflect who he is which Jesus said in John 17, John 17, 21, Lord, would you, Father, would you make them, the disciples, the church, one, even as you and I are one, so that the watching world may believe that you sent me. Our oneness is our most powerful evangelistic tool that we have. It's amazing. There is deep spiritual significance to us actively making every effort to maintain unity. It reflects to the world the nature of God. Man, and a community actively building each other up, doing so with gentleness, humility, patience, that's a testimony to who God is and to his love for us. And just as he's about to go into telling them how to now, or he's gonna talk about spiritual gifts in light of that, how to build each other up, but he pauses and he pulls in the Old Testament in a really beautiful way. Watch this. Verse seven, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, for it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to his people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Let me tell you what he's saying here. Paul is referencing Psalm 68, 18. And he's trying to help the church understand the value of the spiritual gift that God has given them. See, in ancient times, what the psalmist is doing over in Psalm 68 is pulling on this idea that in ancient times, a king would go out to battle to protect his city, all right? So he descends from his throne, goes out to battle, and if he wins, he takes captives 
and he takes a bunch of what's called the spoils of victory, a bunch of things. He returns to the city. He ascends back onto the throne. He sits down and then he gives gifts, the spoils of victory to the people. And the psalmist is saying that when David brought the ark that housed the presence of God back to the tabernacle, he ascended back onto his throne. But more importantly, the ark ascended back into the Holy of Holies and the blessing, the good gift was that God was now with his people. That, that's the, the good gift that God has given. He's now there with them. But then in many ways, this represents the end of the Exodus. The people are blessed by the presence of God, the one true king. And Paul says, but not only that, you got to read the Old Testament in view of who Christ is and what he has done. And he says, God wasn't done at the Old Testament. God had a bigger enemy to defeat, and that was sin and death. And to defeat sin and death, he descended from his throne in heaven. You catch it? He descended from his throne in heaven, came down to earth in the form of man, descended all the way to the cross in humiliation and injustice to death, where he won the victory for us. And then he ascended from the grave. He resurrected and ascended all the way back into heaven, yet still left his spirit to remain with his people. Now, here's what's so great. He had better gifts than any just material spoils of victory. He gave spiritual gifts to his people. Now, Paul's about to talk about spiritual gifts, and I want you to catch what they are. They are reminders of the victory that the king has won for us. Their purpose is to point one another back to the king and remember who we are. We are saved. We were going to be conquered by our enemy, but our king saved us and gave us these gifts to point us back to him. Super important, y'all. When you think about spiritual gifts, we're thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ, our king, and we're celebrating them, who in his grace gave his Holy Spirit and a gift used to celebrate the victory and build up the body of Christ. Let's look, it's remarkable. Verse 11, he starts talking about them. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints. Uh, pause real quick. Saints, uh, depending on where you come from, you might come from a Catholic background. We have a lot of people like that in Charlotte come from a Catholic background. A saint is a holy one, but it's not like just the the one the handful of people that are revered, like St. Francis or St. Peter or something like that. The saints in scripture is every single person that has been saved by the grace of God and has been given the Holy Spirit. So you, if you are a Christian, are a holy one, right? So if we want to use the saint language, it'll be like up at our Northeast campus, there's Carter Graham up there. That's St. Carter of the university area, right? That's who it is. Or St. Richard down in Union County today, right? We are all saints. That's who he's talking about, the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That's the purpose, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Let's unpack this. You start to see ministry assignments flowing out of spiritual gifts. It's cool. Now, this is not a complete list of gifts that we have here in verse 11. In fact, in the New Testament, there are five different lists of gifts, and none of them are the same list, which tells us there is no, like, defined list of gifts, all right? No complete list. But this list right here, this is the list of the um, 
we'll just call it the equippers, okay? The ones who equip others for ministry. You see that? Verse 12, why did he give these? To equip others. This is one of the weirdest things for me. Is like my pastor told me as I was deciding, yeah, I'm going to ministry. He said, well, actually, by going into ministry, you're leaving ministry because you're moving into the role of equipping. And you're to equip the saints so that they can do the work of ministry that God has called them to do. And a lot of times in church, we flip-flop that. Like, well, the pastors do the ministry and we, we just kind of sit here. It's like, no, the pastors coach, equip, train for the work of ministry that God has created you. Ephesians 2.10, the good works God has created you for. But look at these right here. Look at these equippers. You've got um, a lot of times shorthand, just like ministry insider lingo here. They're called the apest, which is apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. I'll explain in a second. There's just, here's what you got. You got apostles, and you'll see kind of this played out in our church among the equippers. You got the apostles, and now the apostles, capital A, yes, the 12 apostles that were with Jesus, but there's also an apostolic gifting, all right? This is the gifting that looks out to tomorrow and says with urgency, we got to go plant a church there. We got to send missionaries to that unreached people group. There is work to be done. We can see it down the road and we got to go, guys. And that's part of my gifting, part of the way God has wired me up. And, And it's needed. We need vision for tomorrow. That's the apostles in the church, the apostolic gifting. Then they're the prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, but the prophetic gifting. And if the apostolic gifting looks at tomorrow, the prophetic gifting looks at today and says, this here or that there, that's where the church is out of alignment with God's word and the prophets call us out. They say, watch out church. Watch out that your life is not all built around creature comforts. There's no kids programming in the book of Acts church. There's no comfy chairs in the persecuted church. Watch out for where consumerism is replacing discipleship. These are the ones, the voices that we don't want to hear but desperately need, right? And then there are evangelists. If the apostles look to tomorrow, the prophets look to today, the evangelists look out into the lost world. And they say, whatever we do, we've got to reach our lost neighbors with the gospel. And I don't care if the church is growing, if it's only a bunch of dissatisfied Christians hopping from one church to the next. Evangelists are the one who keep our mission focused our baptism water's full. Uh, if you know Pastor Scott Urbanic on our staff, that's his gifting for sure. And then you have the shepherds. Our translation today says pastors. The better translation is shepherds. Again, it's gifting language. These are the ones that say, yes, we need vision. We need correction. We do need to focus on our lost neighbors. But what about the people we have right here, the saints, the right here, the ones that are struggling, the ones who just need discipleship? They're the ones that'll say, do you know this guy? Do you know this girl? Do you know this family? I had lunch with them a couple of times. Pastor Jake Greer, Pastor Josh Jones, Rashard Barnes, they're wired this way. Without them, we would burn ourselves out looking outward. Then you got the teachers. It's another area of gifting for me. The ones who say we need to mind the depth of God's word and understand what it says. If we're not in the word, we're crazy, right? That's what the teacher says. But all of these are for what? For equipping the saints for the ministry. All of these are to equip you to use your gift. And by the way, I need to say, now that I've said that, a lot of you probably have these, one of these five gifts, and we just haven't identified it yet. Because these certainly aren't limited to the elders. They're present within the elders and leadership of the church, but not limited there. My job and the job of other equippers is to equip you to use your gift to help you build up the body. That's what your gift is for, to help build up the body to look like Jesus. 
Let me give you a definition here. Spiritual gifts, because we're talking about them a little bit more, are differing abilities given to each believer by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of blessing and building up the local church into the character and likeness of Jesus. I'm going to leave it on the screen for a second. If you're like, where'd you get that definition? It's not like hidden in the back of your Bible with the definitions or something like that, okay? It's just a a summary taken from looking at uh, the gifts, different gifts passages. Now, let me say a couple things that I want to help you get off the sideline, into ministry, away from individualism, away from consumerism, into the life God has called you to. If you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Now hear me, spiritual gifts, according to scripture, are only given to Christians. Therefore, the building up of the body. You might ask, how are they different than skills or Enneagram numbers or whatever? Well, listen, gifts are empowered by God to bless others and build up the body. That's their purpose. J.I. Packer, great book, Knowing God, said it this way. The ability to speak or act in a certain way is only a spiritual gift if and as God uses it to build up the body. Some natural abilities or talents that God has given, he never uses in this way. While sometimes he chooses to build up his body through performances that in our eyes seem substandard. What makes something a spiritual gift is not the quality of the performance, but the blessing of God. Catch that. You might have a talent. It is only a spiritual gift if God is using it to build up the body. Which is why we might have a a CEO here who may be an elite level strategist in the private sector, but she might be a prayer warrior in the church because her spiritual gift is actually faith. God may bless the church through her business savvy, maybe, but maybe not. But will unleash the power of God through her gift of faith. You see, because there's people that came into church today and what they desperately need, you're hanging on by a thread and you desperately need to know that God still loves you that you can still trust him, and you need someone to come along and believe God on your behalf. And the one with the spiritual gift of faith, that's their assignment, which is why we have, and so we, what we do as a church, say, okay, we need to, we're going to put together a prayer team to try to identify people that have the gift of faith, and we'll put them around the church, and you come to them and let them use their gift to build up your faith. That let them use the spoil of victory that Christ bestowed onto them to point you back to the king and tell you he's still on the throne. He's still good. He still loves you. That's what spiritual gifts are doing. So how do you begin to identify yours? I'm going to give you three questions. I've used these. It was about seven, eight years ago that I used them. Where all these connect is usually a good starting spot, okay? Three questions you can use to help figure it out. First, what ministry are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? And I say ministry, because if I just said, what are you passionate about? And you're like, the Panthers. I'd be like, well, that's tough, okay? We're we're all, we're enduring, okay? No, what I'm saying, what area, when it comes to the church, what is it that you're, what is God giving you a passion for? And let me say, if it's a passion for you, there's also another side to that. It's also gonna be a burden that you carry. Here's why. You're probably gonna find yourself thinking, why isn't the church doing more of this? Why isn't the church doing more local outreach? Why isn't the church geared more towards discipleship? Why isn't the church geared more towards evangelism? You put it in there. <laughs> That's the burden that God has given you. And we are probably going to follow you in it. And you're going to make the church more like Jesus. But we're never going to be as far along as you want us to be because it's the burden you carry. You, you catch that? You, you got to understand that. 
And so what do we do? We got to go back up to the first part of uh, this chapter and remember that we got to bear with one another in patient love. Otherwise, we'll just be frustrated with each other all the time. What are you passionate about? Secondly, what need or opportunity do you see in front of you? Maybe it's something the church has said from the stage. Maybe it's somebody has tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey man, love for you to join. Love for you to be a part of this thing here, this ministry that we're looking at. Maybe it's something nobody else has said, but you see it. Like, oh, we got to, this is a great way to build up the church, to reach the lost. We got to step in here. That's the second one. The third one, what do others in the church affirm in you? Like I told you, one of my giftings is teaching. One of my giftings is not um, edifying the church through standing up with a microphone and singing a solo, okay? If I went to Lauren and was like, who's our worship leader here at Providence Road, I was like, hey, Lauren, I just need to sing a couple of solos. It puts her to a hard spot. She's like, I know you're kind of in charge, but no, never, right? Like that would be her response because she's not going to affirm that to me. No one has ever, okay? Even my own children in the car, not affirming that gift, all right? What do others in the church affirm in you? And I say that a little bit playful towards me, but y'all, we all have blind spots. We have things that we like, we really want it to be our gift. But maybe that's not how God has gifted us. And maybe we're actually missing out on how God has gifted us because we're too busy envying a different gift. So those three, if you think of a Venn diagram, right there in the middle is a good starting point. This is a starting point, Okay. You, get, you embed yourself into the church, as I'm going to say in a minute, and then we walk together in community. But these are the kind of questions we should be asking in community group this week. I've got to keep going. When we're all actively operating in our spiritual gifts, here's what he says will be the result. Verse 14. We will Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But instead, speaking the truth in love, Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Oh, this, okay. The blessing of the gospel is that we receive new life in Christ. And just as you are born an infant, so you are born again as a spiritual infant. Beautiful, new life, and just as infants grow, so we are supposed to grow. Listen, prolonged infancy is an unhealthy thing. Paul says you got to grow. What are the signs that you're still a spiritual baby? Well, verse 14, you're not discerning. You are easily deceived. You can't tell good teaching from bad or poisonous teaching. So until you know your way around the Bible, you are still an infant. Not only that, verse 15, 16, you're self-centered. You're focused on you. You're probably easily offended. You'll probably get your feelings hurt uh, by little things, easily slighted, conscious of how people are looking at you or thinking about you or treating you, absorbed with you. You're not thinking about others, right? You can't admit where you've done wrong or where whenever you're concerned about something, it probably has to do with you. And lastly, maybe you're unsteady. Like a child, you get easily distracted. You start things, you start reading plans, you start community group, you start serving because you got emotionally charged in a service, but then you never follow through. Like a child, you're led by your feelings. That's not maturity, that's infancy. Eugene Peterson uh, called discipleship just a long obedience in the same direction. Well, you're, you're changing directions all the time. How do we respond? Let me land it this way. 
First, the Apostle Paul, y'all, maybe take a little pressure off of you, seems to expect there to be spiritual babies in the church. So don't be surprised if there are spiritual babies at Mercy Church, okay? Like, just like there are real babies all over the place here at Mercy Church, there are spiritual babies. And if you hear this and you're like, that's right, that's the problem, all those spiritual babies, that means you are more of a baby than you realize, okay? You're just a big baby. That's who you are. Paul, look at verse 14. Paul says he himself is a baby. He says, we will no longer be. In some sense, we are all children, which as we dwell on it should help summon up that humility from the first part of our passage. It should summon love for when we sin against each other. We're still growing up. It should summon quick forgiveness. And just like when we look at children, it should summon a lot of anticipation for what God still has to do in us. But at the same time, don't dare tolerate spiritual infancy in yourself. Don't be okay with selfishness. Don't be okay with, listen to me, this is so common right now. Do not be okay with a biblically illiterate, feelings-based faith. Do not settle for it. Instead, let's grow up together because when we grow up, God actually does ignite our feelings in response to the glorious truths we learn about him in his word. And secondly, listen, where I'd land this, don't tolerate infancy in yourself and commit yourself to the local church. Look at the language of this passage. It is through deep, committed involvement in the local church, through deep unity and community with fellow members of the body. That's how you grow towards maturity in Christ. So hear me. Here is it again. Bible Bell is probably the place where this is most prone to happen. Do not settle for a loosely connected network of Christian friendships. Don't settle for that. I'm not saying reject them. I'm saying don't settle. Christ calls you to be a part of the body. So in love, attach yourself to the body. How do we grow? We speak truth in love. Verse 15, grow in every way into him who is the head. Because if we speak truth without love, we're harsh. Why would anyone ever speak truth without love? It's because in our pride and ego, we're more concerned with being right than we are with being loving, which is actually selfishness. We're concerned with ourselves, concerned with being right. That's not the gospel at all. Truthfully, if you speak truth without love, you are not speaking truth. Others don't even hear us because it lacks the warmth of the gospel. But others of us don't want to rock anyone's boat So we try to give love and avoid truth, which ironically is also selfish. We're afraid that person will be mad at us. We even lash out at us and we're going to feel guilty and we're going to feel bad. Self-focused and nobody grows. There's too much. uh, We think we want to be nice. It's not written anywhere in scripture that you should be nice. It's written that you should be kind. Kind is speaking truth and love. Nice is platitudes to avoid any conflict. Here's the reality. None of us can actually perfectly mix truth and love. So what do we got to do? We go back and we look at where truth and love meet. And we sit at the cross and we dwell at the cross and we learn from the cross. And the gospel, Jesus announces truth. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And unless that savior pays for our sins, we are eternally doomed That is the most important truth you will ever hear because it tells you who you really are. And it's offensive, right? I'm an eternally doomed sinner. It could be harsh, but 
The gospel is also the most loving thing you can ever hear. Why? Because Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to pay your debt for you. I'm the one. I'm going to die for you. What love? What great love to return to the gospel and see truth and love, dwell in truth and love, and then walk worthy of that love. That's going to be the kind of church that will flourish and multiply and honor the Lord as we grow. Let me pray for you. All three of our campuses, if you would bow in a, a posture of prayer, before I say this prayer over you, I want to um, give you the chance to respond to the Lord on your own. Maybe that's, uh, kind of think of two ways here. First is a prayer based around character. Lord, would you convict me and shape me into into the image of Christ, like I see in the first part of this chapter. One who is humble, gentle, patient, loving. Maybe you confess, whether it's in the church, friendships, work, home, where that's not been you. Lord, make me more into the image of Christ. And secondly, is a prayer of willingness. Lord, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing, Father, I want to use whatever gifts you've given me to build up the church for your glory. It's like the prophet, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me. I'm willing. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've heard this announcement and how it's rooted all in. Everything we're saying is just, based out of what Christ has done for us. That's where you need to rest. Christ has won the victory over sin and death. He descended, came down and won the battle you can't win. And says, you can share in that victory. You can have victory over sin and death in your life and have eternity with him. But you got to receive that gift. The gift is forgiveness, but it must be received. So God, I, I believe you died for me. I believe you did win the victory. So I repent of my sin and my way, and I give you my life. All I have is yours. Father, I believe, <laughs> just like we're talking, I believe you have so much ahead for this church. I'm so thankful for it. God, would you help us, help me and other leaders, others that are in those giftings of equipping to help equip the whole body so that everyone's serving in their gifting, blessing one another, building up the church in a way that makes more of you is a beautiful picture of the hope we have in Christ. We need you. We love you. And we give ourselves open-handed to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.